That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You for the next hour, which I'm so happy that you've chosen to join me for. Uh, we'll dig into topics that are probably at the front of everybody's mind, but maybe do so in some ways that uh, we don't often do or get the chance to do. So thanks for spending some time to contemplate these things with me today. Uh, very happy to have you here. You can find out more about me in several places. You can find out a lot at wordsbyjdk.com, which is a lot of original writings as well as uh, past episodes of this show and a bunch of other stuff there. Uh, you can also find me on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me without a problem. would love to chat with you and uh, hear what's on your mind. Talk a little bit about it. Special thank you, as always, at the front end of the show to uh, our sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area, which provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of all the hundreds of careers in aviation and aerospace. You can check out the way they do that, which is very cool, at airside.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. And uh, you'll hear more about them during the breaks coming up. So <clears throat> this is a very busy week uh, and certainly uh, a, a bit of a deep breath day on day of recording. This is the day before the midterm elections here in the United States. And uh, if you've been keeping any track of that outside the country or inside the country, you know uh, there's a lot of energy, <laughs> to put it very at the most basic level, uh, going on, a lot of feelings about it. Um, and the, the big one seems to be anxiety, uncertainty, various types of fear. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today coming off of last week's uh, episode. So if you get a chance to listen to last week's uh, episode as well, you'll get a little more about what I'm going to talk about today. But before we dive into that, yet again, let's do our weekly recap of the news in this section we always start with called What in the World is Going On? Because it's now getting harder to fight because we're into the sort of muddy season and, and land, land warfare is tricky, Putin is really trying to impact as many people in Ukraine as possible. So you're seeing blackouts as far west as Zhitomir, as far east as Kharkiv, Chernihiv in the north, Zaporizhia in the south, really making day-to-day -day life of Ukrainians difficult because, of course, everybody relies on electricity. Um, he's hoping that this would stoke fear and resentment of the regime and, and crack the cohesion and unity that the Ukrainians have shown till now. I think that's probably a pretty futile hope on Vladimir Putin's part if he's thinking that by attacking Ukrainian infrastructure to affect civilians over the upcoming winter, that that somehow is going to break their spirit. Uh, it is unlikely to do so if the Ukrainian national spirit about, about the war was going to have been broken. It would have been broken before now. Uh, these types of things, historically speaking, if Putin was concerned with an actual objective view of history, these don't work. Uh, trying to bring civilian populations to heal with bombing, with depriving of resources, tends only to have them dig in deeper and resist even further. 
There will be bigger factors uh, around uh, what will affect Ukraine over the winter, which is now arriving there and will slow down everything. Um, but it's certainly not going to be a lack of uh, support in Ukraine for the war effort to defend the country. It might be things like with the U.S. midterm elections, if the House and Senate do flip, uh, aid to Ukraine militarily and otherwise might dry up. Uh, certainly a Republican-led Congress may very well do that or, or at least very strongly limit uh, President Biden's options for uh, sending direct aid to Ukraine. That could have an important role. The role that Europeans may play in all of this. Uh, Russia is using energy uh, as a weapon. They've effectively weaponized that in Europe because much of Europe w uh, relies on uh, Russian national natural gas uh, to heat their homes. And so there has been an increase in political tension in Europe because energy prices are really sky high. I mean, we think that inflation is tough here in the United States when it comes to that. Uh, it is off the charts in Europe. So things like that will probably have more of a role than what Putin is actually trying to do on the ground in Ukraine because uh, that train left the station a long time ago, the idea of breaking the Ukrainian spirit to fight. That simply will not happen because of anything he chooses to do or not to do. And, of course, while that continues to go on, uh, things in Iran continue to uh, worsen or improve, depending on who you ask. Unlike in protests of the past, this time around, students have been joined by working-class crowds, a broad-based, loose alliance that threatens the regime's base of support, burning hijabs and attacking police stations, rejecting the authority of the security services and the religious rules of the clerics. The challenge for Iran's rulers is to manage the protests without setting off more unrest. That's a difficult balance, and it's one that it's far from clear the government is capable of. Of course, now in its ninth week, the Iranian protests that started uh, being led by women protesting uh, the actions of the morality police in Iran has turned into something much bigger. As you heard in that clip, these uh, student-led groups that are protesting at the hundreds of universities around Iran continually are now garnering support from a number of other quarters. Because what's happened, of course, which tends to happen in these types of revolutionary upheavals that start at the ground level and work their way up, is that the, what, whatever the initial group is disaffected by, they find allies in other circles that are also disaffected in different ways, and the opportunities coalesce together. We're now going almost two weeks since uh, the Revolutionary Guard said there were going to be no more protests in the country, essentially a threat, and began to open fire on their own students, which I talked about last week. And it is not quelling the protests. In fact, if nothing else, it's bringing in more people. And this puts a regime like Iran and any other authoritarian regime facing a similar situation in a no-win situation. Because if they continue to crack down and do the same things, they will bring in more support for the protests in the long run. And if they ratchet back and do nothing, that will simply encourage more protests at this point. That's the issue here. We're going on two months almost since these uh, protests began. They are taking on a life of their own. And while certainly it's not clear what the regime may or may not do in the long run, it's becoming clear they're having fewer and fewer options of coming out of this unscathed. And from my vantage point, I think that's a good thing. And clearly from millions of Iranians' point of view, that's also a good thing. And then, of course, as I mentioned, there are tomorrow's midterms here in the United States. According to our new NBC News poll, 8 in 10 Americans are dissatisfied with the economy. 
One positive sign for Democrats? They're closing the enthusiasm gap with 73% of them and Republicans eager to cast their ballots. Republicans had a nine-point enthusiasm advantage just a month ago. The Senate remains a toss-up with races deadlocked in Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, where President Biden and former Presidents Trump and Obama converged to deliver closing arguments this weekend. Enthusiasm gap. That's, a, that's an interesting one. Uh, of course, uh, polls are very, very unclear uh, depending on which ones you're looking at, depending on which ones you want to trust, depending which, which direction you may lean uh, politically. Very hard to tell how tomorrow's uh, midterm elections are going to go. And of course, no one does. As I talked about last week, uh, these, there's this type of thing that sometimes we project this idea that all of these are foregone conclusions that we just simply have yet to discover because fate is going to determine it or whatever. That is simply not the case. The fact is, is we do not know how tomorrow is going to go. We use polls in some ways like, you know, not like quite like a crystal ball, but in a lot of ways we treat it as such. We, we take a look at them and hope they either make us feel better or they motivate the right people in the right places at the right times uh, to go to the polls, to vote, to, to select who they're going to vote for or who they're going to vote against. Sometimes it's one or the other. It's not always the same thing. And, and yet, we're all just as uncertain today <laughs> as we were the day before, and we're not going to know the results of everything until not even just tomorrow. It might even take longer than that. And, of course, the ramifications of, the, of tomorrow's election yet to be seen. As I talked about last week, these things take a while to play out. That moment does not mean that every single thing that all the campaign ads said will happen as a result of tomorrow's election. Very rarely does that actually happen. In fact, it's the unintended consequences that oftentimes are what become most important come out of, out of these elections. And then the cycle begins anew. And as I mentioned last week, all we can do is then ask questions as we go day by day and we absorb whatever it is that's going to happen about what it means for us and what choices do we have over what things that we may be able to control or not control. And so what I want to talk about today coming out of that is building off of last week's show, where I, I asked all of you last week to really take a week and uh, consider how you're feeling. Just notice, particularly when you're talking about the elections or you're filling out your ballot or you're listening to the news about it or reading about it or going through social media, uh, to pay attention to the feelings that were coming up um, inside around the election. What did it all mean? And you may have noticed that I didn't exactly tell you to do anything with them. <laughs> And that was on purpose because, honestly, I think that was part of my larger point. The feelings that we have about the election, even though it's very important, it's important that everyone participate, it's important that everyone vote for lots of different reasons. It's a, it's a cornerstone of the society that we live in, a democratic society. However, because of all the things that I just mentioned, not being able to control the outcome, not being able to know what's going to happen, uh, what it's all going to mean, Sometimes we can take that anxiety or that uncertainty or all those feelings that we might be feeling inside and either project them out onto other people or hope that somehow the outcome in this election will give us the relief that we are seeking or will give us the clarity that we are seeking or will show that we are closer to being quote unquote right than somebody else. Uh, it depends person to person. And I always hesitate to paint with too broad a brush but what I am comfortable saying is we all tend to do those types of things. And 
what comes with that are other things. Looking back, you know, how did we get here, right? Why are things this bad? Where did these people come from that I disagree with? And how can they view things this way? And uh, what is it going to mean? And it can feel extremely heavy. And so as I was thinking about how to follow up from last week, I began to uh, kind of just sit back and let, let the moments come to me and see what perkled up. And you know who ended up floating to the top of all that? Frodo Baggins. <laughs> Frodo Baggins, uh, the main character, of course, in J.R.R. Tolkien's internationally famous, the legendary Lord of the Rings series, which happens to be uh, one of my favorite uh, literary uh, collections of all time. It's one that I first discovered when I was about 10 years old. And Tolkien's language, of course, was, uh, is very, very uh, professional and very fluid and very artful, uh, also very intellectual. And I remember as a 10-year-old thinking I was probably understanding about 10 out of every 15 words. I <laughs> wasn't quite sure. But I loved, I loved what the story was about. And it really resonated with me for a long time. And I've been thinking about Frodo Baggins as kind of a metaphor for where maybe all of us are, are sitting right now, or many of us are sitting in regards to the midterms. And there's a, a specific set of things that, that come to mind here that I'll introduce in just a minute. But to kind of give you a sense of where this came from, as I mentioned, I loved this series when I was a kid. It was, Tolkien went farther than any author I had obviously seen up until that point. How many did I see at 10? But even since then, in the sense that he built a fantasy world, the world of Middle-earth, in such a way that he didn't just populate it with, with humans, with elves, with dwarves and goblins and trolls, all of what became sort of the iconic standardized sci-fi genre set of species. Not only did he do that, but he invented all the languages for all of them. Written and otherwise. Uh, in fact, you can take at Oxford University, you can take Elvish as a class if you want to. Uh, you have to be really into Lord of the Rings to do that. Uh, but nevertheless, he built an entire world and then built, um, like wrote appendices to his books, to the stories, to give background stories on some of the characters, some of the, some of the larger world building. Uh, he has been seen as maybe the great world builder in all of uh, Western fiction for a really long time. And I loved that about the books. And in fact, it inspired me so much. It felt so real, even though it was a very different place, that even as a young kid, I became really interested in doing that myself. Now, uh, I eventually discovered love of history on, in this earth, not Middle Earth. <laughs> and I went that route for a really long time. But my life has kind of come full circle back around that, you know, I've, I've written a novel now that I'm, I'm, I'm pitching and I'm writing more as we speak, bringing together that type of inspired world building, at least in, in my own way, even though I'm not building it around elves and dwarves and all that, uh, in a way that was inspired and rooted in the way Tolkien did it. And I'm doing that now, and that's my real main interest uh, in terms of writing rather than, than just history. And, the and it came around full circle in a way that really resonated as I was thinking about this subject for today. Uh, about, oh, must, it's about 11 years ago now, 12 years ago, I was in the lowest part of my life for a lot of reasons. Uh, and there are reasons that I've covered in, in various places on this show and, and on my website uh, at various times. And you can take a look there, wordsbyjdk.com, and see more specifics. 
But it got so bad at one point that uh, I wasn't going to bed at night. When I went to sleep, what I would do is I would go to my couch and I would lay down on the couch and I would fall asleep with one foot on the floor. It was a very low, low couch. And I would deliberately put one foot on the floor and fall asleep there because uh, my concern was if I went into bed, uh, was, things were so difficult that I was afraid I wasn't going to get out of it, that I would just stay in bed all day. And I didn't want to do that. If I had one foot on the floor and I was on my couch, I told myself I was sort of in a half transit mode, get up and move kind of mode. And, but every night that I did that, and I did this for several months, I put in one of the film versions, Peter Jackson's film versions, of The Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, or The Return of the King, the name of the three books in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I would put one of those on and fall asleep to it every night. I usually went in order of, of the series, and so I would just do that. And if I woke up in the middle of the night and it was over, I'd start it again. And there's a, there's a reason I'm sharing this. And it has, to, has everything to do with what I drew, was drawing at the time out of Lord of the Rings for my own situation, even though it wasn't nearly as dire as what Frodo was going through. It felt that way. And it helped me get through that darkest period of my life in some very profound ways. And there were lessons that I drew from that for myself and all the years since that um, I think might be useful for us to consider uh, as we face the midterms and then whatever comes afterwards. So when we come back from our first break here on this show is all about you, we'll dive into what those lessons are and uh, give you a little bit of background on that and uh, see where we go from there. So come on back. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Don't ask me to talk. Don't ask me to talk is a program about sharing something good. Hosted by me, Stacy Heller, with my co-host and my mom's favorite, Eric Ryder. Don't ask me to talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious. We'll highlight what's good to watch, read, see, listen to, and more with a reoccurring spot with Vance Dingfelder of Dingfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Day before the 2022 midterm elections here in the United States, and I am talking in that context about Frodo Baggins for <laughs> the rings. Uh, and maybe that sounds like really, really out of left field coming into this, but I'm, uh, just bear with me uh, as we go through this. And as I mentioned right before the break, uh, it's, it's a decidedly personal set of stories to me and helped me get through uh, the darkest period of my life Mainly because Lord of the Rings is, it's, while it's the classic quest narrative of Frodo Baggins taking the one ring of power that if whoever has it can enslave all of, all of existence uh, to their will, particularly the Dark Lord Sauron, who is the main bad guy trying to get this ring back uh, to use it to, to enslave the world, uh, Frodo takes this ring upon himself to take it to where it was built, 
Mount Doom in the heart of Sauron's empire and cast it into the volcano where it was forged. And then if he destroys that, Sauron would die. So would all of his uh, evil minions, the orcs, the goblins, the trolls, um, his supporters, they would all disappear and good would triumph over evil. It is the classic quest narrative uh, and it's a powerful one, but that's not what was on my mind in that really dark period of my life. It wasn't about uh, destroying a ring or even destroying evil because really at the heart of the Lord of the Rings story and most quest narratives that are done well are stories of people continuing to move forward, continuing to push themselves forward despite not knowing how it's going to turn out for them and oftentimes against increasingly dire circumstances and more and more reasons to lose hope they continue to move forward in the faith that by doing so, things outside of just their own effort may coalesce together and bring about some sort of victory. Now, in the case of Tolkien, writing in very stark, very stark good versus evil dynamics. Right? And some have recently criticized that as maybe being a little too, little too simplistic. And I, I understand that. At the same time, I think as a literary vehicle, it's particularly powerful because when you make it that stark either way, you allow for a lot of consideration by the reader or the viewer, if you're watching the films, to really see all the different shades of lessons that can be drawn from that. When you create such a stark contrast, it can, be, uh, it can encapsulate a lot in terms of meaning. And so I think it's, it's useful that way. Okay, so now, so for me, going to sleep every night on the couch with one foot on <laughs> the ground so that I knew I could get up the next morning and having Lord of the Rings playing was it so that I had something when I opened my eyes, which was often in those days because I had a hard time sleeping, that I would be seeing something that would be about just continuing to move forward and that a lot of things could be working around me because of through my efforts, through not through my efforts, through the efforts of others that would help things be okay, that I could get through it. And it, it was really powerful to me. And to this day sometimes, even when I'm doing work on my own, sometimes doing some writing or, you know, some prepping or some work of any kind, sometimes I'll put those movies on, not because I still need that kind of a reminder a lot, although sometimes I do, but because there's a comfort to it, a reminder that the difficulty is a part of our existence and uncertainties come up all the time. And, and if I could encapsulate the, the series around any one thing that we could focus on. It's a scene from uh, the first of the three books, The Fellowship of the Ring, where uh, Frodo, who has the Ring of Power and is trying to um, move towards Mordor, which is where Sauron is, and avoid all of his lieutenants that are looking to reclaim the ring, he's traveling with uh, a series of friends. One's an elf, one's a dwarf, several are human, some other hobbits. He's a hobbit. He's like three feet tall, um, he's from the Shire, which is a very pastoral, idyllic place where there's not a whole lot of problems and people love home and love gardening and love good food and uh, good, good pipe weed, all these types of things. A very simple life. Uh, he is from there and they are not known hobbits for their courage. They are not known for their, uh, for their legendary acts in battle or in politics or anything like that. In fact, they're just happy to be left alone most of the time. And uh, he, so he's traveling with these companions that are, are going to go with him to protect him while he goes on this quest. And the main 
main character alongside him is his friend Gandalf, who is a human, uh, but is a wizard. And he's a wizard who's lived for hundreds of years. There's mysterious origins behind him. But he is he is probably the personification of good in all of this. And in Lord of the Rings, the evil is so clear. Sauron's goals are so clear. And the actions of those who support him are so clear. Whereas, and what it can do is it can overwhelm the reader or the viewer with that sense of hopelessness that Frodo and the other characters have, that they, this is really just a, a one in a billion shot that they're trying to do here. And yet, throughout the book, the subtle, quiet forces of good seem to be working on behalf of Frodo and this fellowship of people around him. And Gandalf seems to be the person that Tolkien designed or wrote in to remind us of that in ever so subtle ways with words that he said and then actions that take place either because of him or around him. And there's a scene in The Fellowship of the Ring where the Fellowship is inside the mines of Moria. They're deep in these dwarven mines that uh, were once a gigantic dwarven kingdom, but the dwarves have all been slaughtered um, and they're all dead. And it is now uh, controlled by orcs, which are the sort of the evil foot soldiers of, of Sauron very corrupted, ugly creatures. And so they're sneaking through this place, trying not to be seen and noticed. And at one point, they're there for several days, quietly moving through this underground dark mine. When they're sitting and taking a break, and Frodo begins to despair. The ring has this power that it just tends to corrupt people uh, very quickly, and then it can do so over years. It can prolong people's lives Frodo's uncle Bilbo, who was the main character in The Hobbit, a prelude to The Lord of the Rings, which took place 60 years before The Lord of the Rings story, found the ring deep in a cave in the same mountain range, actually, uh, where it had been with a creature called Gollum for 500 years. And it had corrupted Gollum so thoroughly he had killed someone to get it. It corrupted his soul and left him just a shattered uh, slave of a creature focused only on the ring. And Gollum is trying to find them as well to get this ring back. And Frodo's trying to fight off having the same kind of corruption happen to him. And at this one point, he's sitting with Gandalf in the Mines of Moria, and he begins to despair. And he says something which I think captures the entire essence of the Lord of the Rings story, maybe these types of stories in general, and maybe perhaps a place for us to sit as we go through the uncertainties of what's happening right now and tomorrow with the elections. And this is what he says. Frodo says to Gandalf, this is right from the book, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. It's that last line. And that is an encouraging thought. That for me as a kid, I remember reading and being really inspired by. For me on the couch with one foot on the ground, it, got, it kept me going <laughs> through that evening and up the next morning. That encouraging thought. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. To me, that was incredibly powerful and remains such for us today because I mentioned last week that elections, the way they are pitched to us, they are pitched to us as life and death circumstances. And they're certainly important, 
certainly important for people to participate in. They're certainly important for the future of the country, at least over the next couple of years until the next uh, election, which will be a presidential one the next time around. It's important. So this is not to downplay that. But what ends up happening oftentimes in the rhetoric of all the endless TV ads, uh, the talking sound bites on the news or on social media, is that everything from this point on, how tomorrow goes, everything relies upon it. It gets cast oftentimes in that gigantic good versus evil dynamic that I'm talking about here. And it doesn't matter what side, quote unquote, you happen to be on. <laughs> it happens a lot. And frankly, over the last 10 years, but we could say even less than that, more and more of us um, have fallen prone to that type of rhetoric and that type of framework around this, that this is really good versus evil. And, and this is not really the debate that I'm interested in having. But what I want to point out is, is like last week, this election is just one of many. The work and the effect of these elections will happen far away from cameras, will happen far away from sound bites, will happen far away from the short attention spans that many of us um, struggle with or seem to see in many around us. And the questions for us will become, how do we each take steps moving forward, no matter what happens tomorrow, whether we're happy with it or not happy with it, to move forward in a direction that is beneficial to us and our larger fellowship, which is really everybody. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the majority of people uh, that we can hopefully find common ground with. And unintended consequences, as I talk about a lot on this show, uh, could very well be a, you know, just another way of saying uh, there are other forces at work <laughs> in this world. Right? And that is an encouraging thought. The one thing that is remarkable in the Lord of the Rings stories and is that you do not see where those forces are until situations in all three books have played themselves out entirely. You cannot see where all these things were actually happening until big moments. And it required in between, between those reveals, if you will, for all the main characters to continue moving forward step by step against all odds, against sometimes betrayal in their own ranks. Uh, <laughs> against their own, the own pressures they were feeling. And of course, the ring is making things worse as it gets closer and closer to Mount Doom. Not the best named place, by the way. <laughs> but nevertheless, as it gets closer, its influence gets stronger and darker. And it is, it has a kind of a, a life force of its own. It's trying to get back to Sauron. And so it's, it's pulling out all the stops as time goes by. And Oftentimes, that's how it can feel as these big Mount Doom moments, if you will, that we've turned into Mount Doom moments seem to be imminent. We can feel worse and worse, heavier and heavier, sharper and sharper, um, less tolerant as each step goes by of other people, um, more impatient, you name it. And yet, in the midst of all that, it is a culmination, a combination of the actions of these individual sides of good, if you will, in the fellowship, but also the choices and decisions made by those on the other side, the evil side, combined together with just chance as well as 
consequences, longer-term consequences outside anyone's control or anticipation come together to bring about Frodo's ultimate victory. And yes, spoiler alert, not read this, he does, he is successful in the long run, but it, it certainly comes uh, with a cost. Right? So these, these subtle forces, while they're not nearly as clear as all the evil ones, and Gandalf continues to remind readers about this at various times, they are subtly at work. There's a couple of examples that, uh, that come to mind uh, for me. In The Two Towers, in the second book, uh, Sauron has an ally, Saruman, who is a, who is a wizard who is, was, was a brother to Gandalf, essentially a, they're from the same kind of wizard fraternity, if you will. And Saruman was the head of this order, and he betrayed uh, Gandalf and his fellow wizards by joining Sauron's side unexpectedly. And he launches this huge army at one of the, the human kingdoms, uh, Rohan, at a place called Helm's Deep. And all of the people of Rohan are, are trapped in here. And it is, it is a dire circumstance, to say the least. There are tens of thousands of orcs who are trying to storm through this castle, and they've been ordered to slaughter everybody. And the situation is very dire. Now, Saruman had tried to corrupt the king of Rohan by putting a magic spell on him earlier in the story. And in that process, uh, the king, Theoden, had banned his nephew and all these riders, who they were all horsemen, thousands of these soldiers had banished him from, from Rohan because Saruman thought he was going to be breaking apart the country and he could pick up those pieces. Well, in part because the defenders at Helm's Deep, which is part of this fellowship that I was talking about, they fight, they bring in allies, the elves help them, they fight against impossible odds for days at a time. Gandalf, meanwhile, runs off and goes and finds this nephew of Theoden and these thousands of riders, brings them to the battle, and they smash through the lines of the orcs and destroy them. So in many ways, the consequences of Saruman's own actions come back to bring about defeat. But it would not have happened if these protagonists inside the castle had not fought against impossible odds without any hope of anything good coming. It allowed for these things to come together all at the same time. And that big charge of Gandalf and the, the riders of Rohan comes just as dawn comes up over the mountains at Helm's Deep and the, the light of the dawn blinds the orcs to the attack and so they can't see. So the timing of all these things happens together uh, to bring about this victory. And it required every single one of those pieces for it to happen. So it wasn't just about the actions of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli the Dwarf it wasn't, or, or Theoden, but it wouldn't have happened without them. So their actions mattered, their choices mattered, their perseverance mattered, but so did hoping beyond hope. So did standing on principle, performing their duty, not turning against one another, continuing to hold faith in their skill, in the skill of one another. That was a powerful part of that story and that scene in there. And of course, it's an unexpected, disastrous defeat for Saruman and for Sauron. And it causes Sauron to make some not so good choices in response. And that opens the door for Frodo to get closer to Mordor and to sneak into Mordor without Sauron, Sauron knowing it. It makes it easier for him to do that it would have been otherwise. So throughout the story, Sauron's own actions, his own evil, has a set of consequences that build up 
towards it and in the end helps bring about his undoing. And there's, there's one other example of that uh, that I'll talk about you know, after the break here in just a minute. But just before we do that, this is the thing I think in terms of, for me, that's the draw of bringing these two things together, the midterm elections and this, is all we can do is what we can do. We can act on our principles. We can act on our conscience. We can talk with one another. We can, we can ally with one another. And certainly, unlike <laughs> this, this world of stark evil and stark good, not everybody on the other side is an orc. Right? Uh, in fact, very few are. Right? And the ones uh, that are really maybe unreachable in some ways are just simply that. And we don't necessarily need to worry about them. But there's some lessons here that are universal outside of this election cycle, outside of any election cycle. Ones that I think it's one of the reasons why Tolkien's uh, writing has withstood the test of time and will continue to because these are very human, common experiences. When we come back after the break, I'll share one more example from this and talk a little bit more about uh, how we can uh, move forward with this here on this show is all about you. Stick around. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Talking about uh, Lord of the Rings, but in the, concept, in the context of the upcoming elections and this idea of what do we have control over and um, how do we keep going when things feel hopeless? And the point before the break that I was making with some of the examples I included was that there are forces, as Gandalf said in The Minds of Moria, there are forces out there working in ways that we simply cannot see and that all we can do is make our own choices and move forward. You know, no matter what happens at any point, uh, whether we wish it to happen or not, that's what we can do. And let other things around us, that includes other people, that includes changing circumstances, chance, you name it. Uh, let all that work itself out and see where it goes. And in the meantime, we can be confident that we are acting upon our principles, acting upon the things that most are most important to us, those values that I talked about last week. And I used an example of Helm's Deep to talk about how these things all came together. Well, the, the, the very end of the, the climax of the entire uh, series is an example of this, too. I mentioned uh, before the break the character Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And he was a one who held on to the Ring of Power and he kept it secret deep inside the mountains for 500 years. And it slowly ate him alive. I mean, it, it corrupted his soul deeply. He forgot his own name. Um, he became essentially uh, a wild creature. 
And when he loses the ring and Bilbo finds it, he spends the next 60 years trying to find Bilbo, desperate to get it back. And Bilbo doesn't know he has the ring of power for 60 years. And eventually, by the time Frodo gets it, the whole story is coming where now Sauron is looking for it. And Gollum is following after uh, Frodo, trying to get it back from him. Frodo and his uh, companion Samwise, who is his friend and his gardener from the Shire, another hobbit, uh, in the story end up going off just the two of them on their own uh, to sneak into Mordor to destroy the ring. And Gollum finds them and tracks them. And eventually Sam and Frodo capture him and, and convince him to be a guide to get them into Mordor. Uh, Gollum, in the course of looking for the ring, had, had uh, unfortunately for him, been captured by Sauron, had been tortured. So he knew about Mordor, and so he agrees to take them there, all the while scheming on how he could get the ring back. He makes, a, he makes an attempt for it, and it doesn't go well, and that's right at the gate, right at, when they get into Mordor, and he disappears. And we're supposed to think that Gollum is, is dead. Uh, but he's not. And right as Frodo gets to into Mount Doom and the story is about to culminate, uh, he's standing there with the ring, about to drop it into the, the lava flow below, which will destroy it. It's the only thing that can destroy it. Uh, the ring finally wins over Frodo, and Frodo can't drop it. Uh, he turns to Samwise, and much wise to Sam's horror, says, the ring is mine. He puts the ring on his finger, which is going to let Sauron know that where the ring is. He puts it on and he disappears so that the ring can turn you invisible. So when this happens, though, Gollum shows up. He's been following them, you know, from a distance. And he sees Frodo put on the ring. He attacks Frodo. He bites Frodo's finger off <laughs> with the ring on it. And Frodo, literally the only thing that could separate Frodo from the ring was Gollum. And he bites off the, ring, the finger, picks up the ring. And the movie does a little bit of a different. In the movie... Uh, Gollum and Frodo fight and Gollum falls off the cliff into the lava fire below and the ring is destroyed. In the book, it doesn't happen that way. In the book, Gollum is so overjoyed at getting the ring back, he celebrates, dances, jumps up and down, loses his footing and slips off the cliff into the lake of fire below. So if we're talking about all those forces that come together, there are forces in this world bigger than that of evil, Gandalf said, you know, hundreds of pages before. This is that moment. Gollum, a creature corrupted by the ring, turns out to be a force used by this larger force of good to make sure the ring gets destroyed. Almost as if it was clear Frodo would get to the very edge but not be able to do it. And so that larger force of good, if you will, made sure the situation was set up that the ring would be destroyed. Now, that raises a whole bunch of questions about, about the nature of the divine and good over evil. And those are all questions that are way beyond the pale of this show, at least for today. But nevertheless, that is an encouraging thought, as Gandalf said, that even something is corrupt and someone is so wretched and pathetic and... Um, horrible as Gollum is. His, his character is just, you can't help but be disgusted by him, but heartbroken for him at the same time. In the end, the very thing he wanted, the very thing that had consumed him, it did consume him in the end. It did destroy him in the end. And yet, in the process of that, it saved everyone else. Is that enough to redeem Gollum? Who knows? Okay, but nevertheless, it brings together this whole thing. And in the meantime, 
all of Frodo and Sam's friends have been fighting Sauron's armies and proving victorious. And similar things are happening, right, to help bring that about. Right? Aragorn coming to terms with the fact that he's the heir to uh, this throne, to bring together all of human beings into, into one kingdom again. He finally is willing to embrace that, despite the curses that have been sitting on his family line for centuries. And there's all these different examples in all the different characters uh, that can do that, uh, that show that. And so it's this really powerful thing that in the end, and again, it doesn't happen until the very end. There's no way to know this was how it's going to turn out. Everybody had to act on the basis of the best of what they knew they needed to do. So what does that all mean you know, for us? And, and what, when I was thinking of like, what's the takeaway from all of this, besides hopefully you're interested now and maybe you know, reading Lord of the Rings or going watching the movies. If you do watch the movies, watch the extended versions. Each one of them is four hours long. But if you're really wanting to get a sense of the books, watch those ones. But nevertheless, um, what I came to in thinking what would be the takeaway is a quote from, again, another Tolkien quote. But this time it comes from uh, one of the, the films about The Hobbit. There was the, 20 years ago, uh, Peter Jackson made the trilogy for, for Lord of the Rings. And The Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and Return of the King were some of the highest grossing films of all time. Return of the King won Best Picture that year. I believe that was 2003. And then Peter Jackson decided to do a trilogy around The Hobbit, the precursor, the, the prequel, starring with Bilbo Baggins. And he split it into three movies. He added a lot in, uh, a lot of dialogue. He used the appendices that, that uh, Tolkien had written for Lord of the Rings and a few others to, to flesh out the story. But there's a scene in the first Hobbit film called An Unexpected Journey where Gandalf meets up with Galadriel, who is uh, sort of the queen of the elves, if you will. And they've been friends uh, for centuries. Uh, and um, she asks him at one point when why he chose Bilbo to go with this company of 12 dwarves that are trying to reclaim their homeland from an evil dragon uh, named Smaug. And, um, and so she asks him, why did you choose Bilbo? Why the halfling? And uh, Gandalf says, I don't know. Saruman, who was still a good guy at the time, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check, Gandalf says. But that is not what I have found. I found it is the small things, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, simple acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it is because I am afraid and he gives me courage. Tolkien really drove home the power of the everyday life, of a life well lived, to be the best tonic, the best counter, the best, um, <laughs> whatever you, the best blocker of these types of things that tend to corrupt us or bring us to fear or bring us to lash out. All these things that cause us unease. And his focus on the hobbits, first Bilbo and then 60 years later Frodo, is that the hobbits seem largely immune from these big, overwhelming forces, questions of power and prestige and destruction and valor because they love their everyday lives so much. And they have a sense of what really matters and their connection to one another, their connection to the earth. They all love to be gardeners. Their enjoyment of simple things, good food, good drink, <laughs> good pipe weed. This is something that he comes back to, Tolkien does, time and time and time again. And so it always has brought me to ask the question, what are those things for me? If, I, if my life is the Shire, where hobbits live, or, or I can make it as such, what is it made up of? 
And some of those similar things. I love good food. I love good drink. I don't smoke a pipe or anything else. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, those are good things. But certainly connection with other people, sitting in a good armchair, reading a good book <laughs> is a good thing. Hobbits like that too. Uh, those types of things have power. And we tend to, in times like we're facing right now, dealing with right now, we tend to lose sight of that. Or maybe it's one of the reasons why we're so fearful in the first place. We're worried about losing those things. Somebody's going to take them away from us. A politician or a law or um, a malevolent force uh, of some sort or a, uh, an ideology with which we don't agree. We're worried those things are going to be taken away from us. And so in the, in the name of protecting that, we then bring ourselves right into that mode of crisis. And hobbits tend to just do what needs to be done. And every time they run into trouble and every time they begin to despair, every single one of them, Frodo, whether it's Bilbo and the Hobbit, Frodo and Sam, uh, their friends Merry and Pippin and Lord of the Rings, what do they think of when they need to keep going? They think of home. For them, home is an internal. Last week I talked about the externals and the internals. What Tolkien was getting at with the Shire and how the Hobbits connect to it is what are our internals, those values? What is it that Gandalf noticed? The simple things. What are those for us? Those are the things that can keep us going while all the other things around us continue to operate in such a way to bring about an outcome that we wouldn't be able to anticipate in shape, form, or timing, no matter how hard we tried. This is exemplified in uh, one scene in Two Towers, where um, a lot of bad stuff is going on, and Frodo again despairs. And this time, it's Sam who brings this back. And, and Frodo says... I can't do this, Sam. And then Sam says, tearfully, Sam says, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass, and a new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. And then Frodo asks him, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. All of that comes together for me in at least sort of how I'm sitting with not just the midterm elections, but how I've been sitting through a lot of the upheavals of the last handful of years. And it has been a lot. There's been more in the last handful of years than some previous years, to be sure. But this is one of those times, like Gandalf said in the Minds of Moria, just those who live to see such times. Well, we're some of those people that are living to see such times. And the fact is, if, if, Tolkien was tapping into universal human experiences. This is just simply our turn. This time and all these things that come with it are things that human beings have faced and some human beings have faced far, far worse. <laughs> and in the end, much like Gandalf seemed to understand and the Hobbit seemed to embody, what will make a difference in the long run, regardless of how the midterms go, are how well and how many of us connect to those important internal things those values 
that really move us forward and how well we connect with those and then how well those give us the ability to connect with other people. And if that sounds like a long game, it is. It has to be. Elections themselves cannot do that work for any of us. Whether we're on the side that quote unquote wins or loses, it doesn't matter. Those are simply those markers, as important as they are. Work has to be done after them too, and then before the next one. All of those things are simply unavoidable. And if we're thinking that somehow we can get out of all this based on how an election is going to go, we are inevitably going to be disappointed on the other end, even if everything goes the way we want it to tomorrow. Because that is not how this stuff works. <laughs> it requires us to keep going. And on a certain level, to decide, are we going to have faith that things larger than ourselves are working around us, through us, between us, to bring about better things in the long run? It's a question each of us has to answer for ourselves and sit with on a daily basis. And that's the most important thing, to sit with that reality and the feelings that come with it and recognize that when we do that, we can get away from all the narratives. We can get away from all the dire. We can get away from the it's this way or it's doom and actually have a better sense of who we are and what we can do going forward. So there's your Tolkien lesson <laughs> for the day. Uh, I hope it inspired you in some ways. I feel pretty inspired and pretty comforted myself right now. So that's, that's a good thing. So uh, thanks so much for listening to another episode of this show is all about you. Be sure to check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com or hit me up at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any others and uh, chat with you a little bit more about whatever's on your mind. So as my way of thank you, as I do every week, this show is all about you is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks, Eric. Show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music for this show is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Special thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week has to go to Julia Cannell, Tawny Dave Santabria, Troy Hunter, Ashley Kniebel, Kathy Lewis, Seth Mormon, Ken Winnikin, Pete Connolly, Phil McCoy, Kelly Lynch, Bruce Flommer, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. Special thanks this week to Lucky Charms. I rarely eat you anymore, but when I do, it's glorious. Thanks also to the calendar for turning to November. So much good stuff going on this month. Thanks, of course, in advance to all the Tolkien fans who will write me now to tell me what I got wrong. I love your passion, if nothing else. And to you listeners, thank you. I couldn't do this for you without you. And finally, as a way to send you off into tomorrow and the rest of the week, let's end with this original haiku. The time we have here can be spent for good or ill with simple choices. Chins up, everyone. <laughs>